Good morning, church. Um, today's sermon passage will be uh, 2 Peter 3, uh, verses 1 to 11. You can find this on page uh, 985. 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as a reminder to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the word of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the, the same word, the present heavens and earth res, were reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. This is the word of the Lord. Have a turn around now. Yes, okay. Fantastic. Well, so wonderful to be with you and so wonderful to be in God's Word with you. Um, you might notice, hey, I thought we were in Deuteronomy. We've actually finished the series in Deuteronomy. Uh, last week we had baptisms and confirmations, if you recall. And today we are beginning a um, short series, two weeks, um, an Advent series. An Advent series. Now, um, just in the lead up to Christmas, which can you believe is, is 10 days away, Christmas is in 10 days, um, we are going to spend two weeks thinking about this idea um, of, of Advent. Now, Advent is a bit of a foreign concept, I think, for a lot of us, if we've grown up in this particular tradition of going to church. But the word Advent just comes from the Latin word for coming, right? For coming, the coming of Jesus in particular. And so traditionally, the idea of Advent each year is to prepare our minds and to prepare our hearts as the people of God to celebrate Jesus' coming at Christmas well. Right? That's the whole point. Christmas can be so nuts, it can be so crazy, it can be so overwhelming. Uh, we want to take the time uh, this week and next week to just kind of slow down, to dedicate these two weeks for us to prepare well as we consider what it means for Jesus to have come and as we, in particular today, as we think about what it not, 
only what it means for Jesus to come, but what it means for Jesus to come again. Yeah? And so um, we're going to pray. Uh, we'll get into the God's word. And uh, yeah, let, let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, that your word is living and active. And we thank you that uh, Christmas is coming so quickly. And as a reminder, as we just sung a carol as we began our service today, uh, that there is great, great joy and there's great, great peace knowing that you would send your son to earth, would humble, and that your son would humble himself uh, to become a man for us. Uh, Father, there is incredible meaning, there is profound meaning for that uh, and for us. And so, Father, I pray that as we are thinking about everything to do with Christmas from an organizational point of view, Father, help us not to forget uh, the joy, the beauty, and the life-changing message that Christmas actually is. We pray that this week and next week would help us prepare well. And so be with us today and speak to us clearly in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, as we begin today, uh, I've got a question for us to think about. Yeah, a question for us to think about. Um, it's, uh, it's an existential question. It requires you to dig very, very deep to your very depths. All right, here's the question. Ready? Ready? Here's the question. The question is this. Why are movie sequels so terrible? Seriously, why are movie sequels so terrible, right? Whether it's a big-budget movie or not, sequels just seem to always be worse than the original, right? For every Toy Story sequel, you'll have your Matrix sequels, right? You'll have your Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. You'll have your Lion... Who even, know, who even, who even knows that Lion King had sequels? Oh, really? There's a few of you. Okay. It didn't make the movies. I didn't actually even know the Lion King had sequels. There's actually two of them. Um, but this isn't just vibes. This isn't just something that I'm saying, just, just out of the blue. Uh, this has been scientifically verified that sequels aren't as good as its originals. Check this out. Ready? Uh, there is this full-on map. Now, I'm not going to explain to you everything to do with the map, but this graph has basically taken the scores on Rotten Tomatoes, you know Rotten Tomatoes, they, they critique all the movies, and for every movie that's had a sequel, what they've done is, and this is all you need to know, if the sequel is better than the original movie, you'll see a dot on the top half of that, of that, of that, of that um, what's that called, a diamond, right? Um, if the original is better than the sequel, then the dot will go below the line. Now, you'll see that there's hardly any movies on top of that line, right? And the circles, the size of the circles, the bigger the circle, the bigger the budget of the film. Right? And so Rotten Tomatoes has gone through every movie that's had a sequel and said, fact, sequels suck. And so why bother making them? Why bother making them? Crazy, huh? Now, why, why do I bring this up? Why do I bring this up? Um, now, if I were to... Um, no, let's, let's pause, right? As we begin this series thinking about Advent... Again, remember, Advent is just for the Latin word for coming. I wonder whether we think of Jesus' second return, that is, Jesus' second coming, whether we often ignore that, kind of like it's a terrible sequel. Especially when we compare it to Jesus' first coming, which we celebrate at Christmas. Let me explain. Now, if I were to poll our congregation here between which of the two, either Jesus' first coming or second, which is more identifiable? Which, we, uh, which of the two we naturally appreciate more? Which of the two we more naturally gravitate towards? 
I am pretty certain that Christmas, the first coming of Jesus, uh, would win by a massive majority. And, and it's completely understandable, right? I mean, gee, Christmas is, is just so much more tangible, right? Like, it's, it's in the past. We've got public holidays each year surrounding it. Our work often shuts down before and after it. We've got services dedicated to it that Mel just, just, just directed us to. We've got signs, advertising, lights, nativity displays, Christmas carols that all point us to the realities of Christmas every year. And so coming back to the language of movies and sequels, Christmas in the, the first coming of Jesus is kind of a classic, right? And the second coming is often the little brother that doesn't have much of a budget and doesn't get showed on the, on the big screen. It's little wonder that Jesus' first coming can take, can take so much more of our attention than his second. And so today my hope for us is to pause, to have a look at God's word, and for us to look closely at the sequel that Jesus' second coming is, and see that that is worth waiting well for. Yeah, That that is worth waiting well for. It's going to be a little bit of a different sermon. Uh, we'll come back to 2 Peter 3, but keep it open. We'll come back to it. Um, uh, but we're going to be going through three questions that are, if you've got an outline, they're there for you. Uh, if you want to follow along and take notes, we're going through three questions. Uh, what are we waiting for? First question. Second question, how has the church tried to wait? And then the third question, how should we wait? Yeah? What are we waiting for? How has the church tried to wait? How should we wait? Firstly, uh, what are we waiting for? And what exactly are we waiting for when it comes to Jesus' second coming? Now, to do that, to, to get us into that, uh, to understand what's, what, are we, what exactly we're waiting for, we're going to look through uh, a number of places in the New Testament um, that point us to what to expect. Now, I'm not even exaggerating when I say this. Every book of the New Testament points us to Jesus' return. Right? Every book points us to Jesus' return. Um, we obviously don't have enough time to go through every single verse that does that. If we were to do that, that would take us through to next Sunday, so we're not going to do that. But what we will do is we'll look at a small selection of them. And I hope as we do that, you get a, gl a glimpse. You, you kind of piece things together to see what God has planned and what exactly we are waiting for. So the first thing I, we, I want us to see is that we are waiting for a return of Jesus that will be visible and triumphant. The return of Jesus will be visible and triumphant. Jesus, um, speaking to his disciples, tells them in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Also speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Right? At that time, in other words, we see that there will be no doubt who is king. At that time when Jesus returns, there will be no doubt who is reigning. The power and glory of Jesus will be clear for all to see. Right? In, in just about every way, Jesus' second coming will look absolutely nothing like his first coming. Why? Well, let's think about his first coming for a second, right? In his first coming at Christmas, Jesus came in very lowly circumstances, didn't he? Right? He came in humble circumstances. His first coming, his first advent, involved a manger. He came as a baby. There was no room for him. His coming almost ended the marriage relationship of his parents, Mary and Joseph. Right? Very few people saw Jesus when he first arrived. And that's, that's a glimpse of his first coming. What about his second coming, though? Right? 
Jesus' second coming, the second advent, won't be that lowly. It won't be so humble. Right? Jesus won't come as a fragile baby. He will come with great power, we see in these verses. He won't be seen by a few. In Revelation, we'll see that every eye will see him. All peoples of the earth will see him. He won't be in a manger either. He will come in glory with the angels, with him as king. Now, I read in an article recently that explained, you know, you know the Christmas carol, Joy to the World? We all know it, right? It's a very popular one. It's sung everywhere. We'll sing it definitely in a couple of weeks. If you look at the lyrics, that's not actually a carol about Christmas. I don't know if you realize that. The, the carol, Joy to the World, has actually very little to do with Christmas. Um, if you read the lyrics carefully, you'll see that it is actually a song telling the story of this little point that we're just talking about here. It's a song about actually how visible and how triumphant Jesus' return will be. And we sing that every Christmas. Right? We'll have a closer look. Um, the first verse, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Right? That verse is talking about when all of heaven, all of nature will receive Jesus as king. It is when he returns that every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will repeat the sounding joy, to use the lyrics of the song, for all eternity. Verse 2, let, uh, let no more sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. When will there be no more sin? When will, be, when will there be no more sorrow? It's not when Jesus first comes. It's when he comes again. That will be the case. It is on that day that there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And the final verse of the carol is that he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Right? This verse captures the reality that we see in Revelation 7, that when Jesus returns, every nation, tribe, people, and language will declare the glories of God. And so there you go. Right? When we sing this carol this year, which you will, when you hear this carol in the supermarket or whatever, right, remember that as you are thinking about Christmas and the reality that Christmas is, we are also thinking about the reality of not just Jesus coming as a baby, but Jesus coming to rule and to reign as king. That's the point, that Jesus' second return will be visible and triumphant. But that's not all. Um, Jesus' return will also be certain Yet unexpected, right? Certain, yet unexpected. Now, as much as a paradox that that might sound, uh, let's look at, together at why the Bible points us to think this way. Um, Jesus himself directly promises he'll return. Uh, you see this promise in all four of the biographies that we have of Jesus. Um, Jesus himself direct, uh, So in John 14, 3, Jesus, speaking directly to his disciples, he says this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Uh, Jesus, soon um, uh, after he ascends into heavens, the angels, speaking to the disciples that are just looking up, going, what's going on, what's just, what's just happened? The angels tell them, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will, will come back. In the New Testament, Jesus' second coming is mentioned nearly 300 times. Right? That, if you do the math, that's like one, one in every 13 verses. Right, is about the second coming. The point of, the, the point of that overwhelming sample of, of, of verses is to tell us that you've got to bank on this. This is guaranteed. It's certainly happening. 
And yet, this event will be unexpected. You see, although God the Father has set an exact time for when this will take place, when Jesus will return, that time, that time hasn't been revealed to anybody. For us, for the world, it's going to come unexpectedly for us. Right? Jesus in um, Mark chapter 13 says, But about that day or hour, no one knows. Right? Jesus says, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. He doesn't know. Only the Father knows. He repeats it again before he leaves them uh, in that second passage on the screen. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The metaphor most famously used to describe how unexpected it will be is what's at the bottom of the screen. We read it in our passage today. Peter describes this day coming like a thief. Yeah, this day is going to come like a thief. Now, before I was born, uh, my family lived in a little apartment on the first floor. Uh, my mum and dad had just one car, and so on a typical work day, they would take the car to either the train station or they'd directly drive to work. And so there was this one particular day, their place was nearly robbed, right? Nearly, nearly. Uh, uh, whoever this robber was, um, they clearly had their eye on their little unit for some time, right? They knew uh, somewhat how things worked, at least to the point that they knew that whenever the car was taken out, um, out of the garage, the unit would be empty and free for the taking. So he'd, re he'd done his research. Right? And so this is how the story was told to me. Shortly after my parents left for work with the car, uh, this man tried to enter the apartment. Uh, this man didn't go through the front door. He climbed onto our balcony, actually, uh, from the ground floor, which I guess isn't too high. However, as he scaled onto the balcony and climbed over it, he sees that the unit's actually not empty. My aunt from Hong Kong is actually just visiting, it's coincidentally at that time, and she's sitting on the couch. This is how I know this story, because obviously my parents weren't there. But, so this robber scales onto the balcony, he looks through the window, and there's my aunt. And my aunt is staring at him, and he is staring back at my aunt. Now, I have no doubt this robber is absolutely stunned that there's someone at home, and my aunt is probably absolutely terrified. So what does my aunt do? Well, she does the most nonsensical thing ever. She, um, apparently, what she, what she did, I kid you not, she actually opens the balcony door for him to come in. Crazy. But not only does she open the balcony door for him to come in, apparently then she goes to the front door of the apartment of the unit and opens that door too. And so basically, she's given him his exit strategy, right? In and out. He could take whatever he wanted and then leave. But what happens next? It makes absolutely no sense to me. What does the man do? Well, he walks into the unit, and then he walks straight out. <laughs> he doesn't take a thing. He literally walks in and leaves without taking a thing. Just incredible, right? Now, not that we condone stealing here at this church. We absolutely don't. But I don't know about you. If we were to give this robber, this thief, a score out of 10 of how well he did as a thief, he'd, he'd fail pretty miserably, right? I mean, not only was there someone home, he was seen, and then he didn't take anything. That's one lousy thief. Friends, Peter's point is that Jesus' return is going to be absolutely unexpected. And unlike the thief who tried to rob my parents' place, although we shouldn't be shocked when Jesus comes because it's certain, because it's guaranteed, because it's, we can bank it, the timing of his return will be unexpected. The return of Jesus will be visible and triumphant. It will be certain yet unexpected. And thirdly, um, 
it will be personal and physical. Personal and physical. Now, there are those that think that in some way, uh, Jesus' second coming will be a purely spiritual one. Right? Purely spiritual. Maybe, maybe symbolic. So Jesus will spiritually return, or perhaps he already has. He'll come without his body, and as believers, we'll just, we'll just kind of know on the inside that he's back. And so this life, right now, 2019, um, according to them, is pretty much as good as it gets. Right? And, and as interesting as some of those ideas might be, you've, you've got to do some pretty amazing gymnastics with a whole bunch of verses in the Bible to believe in something like that. Right? The passage there on the screen uh, is an example of that. Acts chapter 1, as Jesus ascends physically before his very disciples, they are told by the angels, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way. You have seen him go into heaven. See, what was Jesus in that moment before them? Right? He was physical. He was bodily. He had eaten with them. He had let, him, let them touch his scars, his hands and his feet. And yes, there were some differences with Jesus' new body, but it was very much physical. It was not some untouchable spirit or ghost. And if Jesus left the disciples in that way, as he ascended, then the angel saying he will come back in the same way must mean that Jesus' return will also be a physical one. It will also be a personal one. It's not symbolic. It's not purely spiritual. He will come back in person, which is why we call it personal. He will appear as a man like he did when he first came. So in summary, what are we waiting for? This first point, what are we waiting for? We are waiting for Jesus to certainly return while unexpected in time. He will return in triumph, visible for all to see. And he will come in a physical, personal, yet bodily way. <clears throat> now, uh, Jody and I enjoy our TV shows, and for particular shows that don't come out all at once, they, they often have these previews at the end of each episode to kind of point us to, like, give us 30 seconds of the next episode that's going to release next week. Now, I know you know what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't know if you know this, if you jump on YouTube or if you open a podcast app, there are entire channels and podcasts dedicated to analyzing these 30-second bits uh, of, these, of, these, of these things that point us to the episode that's to come. Right? They, they, what they try to do is they analyze every frame of these previews. They call them Easter eggs for some reason. Right? In order to kind of get as many clues as possible for what the episode next week will be. Right? They explain things and they give inside knowledge of what might be expected. See, these previews, these podcasts, these YouTube channels, they're all about anticipation. Even the previews themselves are about anticipation. They're all about making you drool for the next episode to release. See, friends, what God has chosen to reveal, the stuff that we've just looked at, in Scripture about Jesus' second coming is meant to be a preview. It's meant to be a preview for us for what is to come. And as you read it and as you hear about it and as you begin to imagine what this future reality is going to be like, what will your response be to this preview? How are you waiting for it? I remember one of my Bible college professors speaking about this exact topic. He was talking about when he was walking into hand his freshly printed PhD dissertation. He was praying desperately as he was walking from his printer to, to the point where he had to hand it in. He was praying desperately that Jesus wouldn't return anytime soon. Right? He'd just done five years. He just committed five years of his life to research and to writing. And he wanted people to read it. Right? So this is no guilt trip. I'm not asking you as a guilt trip. 
But as we celebrate Jesus' first coming in a matter of just 10 days, given we have this preview of what is to come, how are we waiting for it? How are you waiting for it? But before we think about us, exact, uh, us uh, directly, let's consider how the church, how has the church uh, tried to wait? We're up to point two. How has the church um, tried to wait? And when I mean church, I'm not talking about here at, at SWEC. I'm talking about the church super generally, right? Everybody who would call themselves a believer all throughout history. Um, how has the church waited for Jesus' return in light of what we've seen in Scripture? Now, really broadly, there are four ways the church has waited very badly. Right? There are four ways the church has waited really, really badly. And on your outlines, you'll see uh, four points with the letter F on them uh, because they're, great, not, they're not great responses quite frankly, and coincidentally, I could find four words that started with F to capture that. So, firstly, how has the church uh, waited badly? Well, they've waited badly for Jesus by fleeing, is the first one, by fleeing. Um, Knowing that Jesus will return has led to certain parts of the church to flee, to run from all of society, from the world, to to kind of of, um, uh, hibernate from reality. Knowing that Jesus' return, in part, has motivated monks, for example, to avoid the world and to escape from civilization. They've, they've, they've historically withdrawn. They've isolated themselves. Right? Knowing Jesus would return has motivated the Amish people, for example, as well, uh, in part to create their secluded community. Right? They've fled from society. They've fled from reality. That's not a great way to wait. Another bad way that we've waited for Christians is that there's been fighting. It's led to wars and battles and military force. Knowing that Jesus will return has led for some Christians in history to engage in literal war to advance God's kingdom. The Crusades, if you know it, are one such example. Twisting men and women to believe that they could cleanse the world with Jesus' heavenly armies by might, by violence, by force. And that's a terrible and unbiblical way to wait. There's also a third way we've waited badly. Folly, right? Folly. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers in the 20th century, said this. "Um, The great doctrine of the second advent has, in a sense, fallen into disrepute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. You get that? People would be more occupied by the who and the when rather than the fact of the, of, of, of the what, right? The fact that it's coming. You see, Southwest, there have been periods in Christian history, really as recently as the last few decades, that people have poured time and resources into determining how and when Jesus will return. Now, growing up, I had this neighbor across the road uh, uh, from me um, come. She would come and knock on my door, she would knock on my door and show me this. She's pretty old school. She had a typewriter. Right? She, she had typewritten and gone to office work and printed this massive book of notes that she had made in her lifetime where she was absolutely sure that the events in world history matched up with the signs uh, that we see in the Bible. Right? And so uh, she was absolutely certain that Jesus would come at a specific time of a specific year uh, and she was t- wanted to tell me about it. And this book was so thick. You know, your pew Bibles that you've got, it, it was at least three times thicker than the pew Bible in front of you. I kid you not. 
She told me with absolute certainty that Jesus would return, wait, get, get this, before I finish my HSC. Um, I had my 10-year high school reunion last year. Right? That was 10 years ago. She told me with absolute certainty that it would, finish, it would come before I finished my HSC. Now, obviously, obviously we're curious. Obviously, we want to know when Jesus will come back. We get that. But to dedicate all this time and this energy to what we're told is only known actually by the Father, that is actually kept a secret from us. To somehow deceive yourself into thinking that we can know what the Father knows. That's just pure folly. It'd be like, it'd be like those people who create those YouTube Easter egg videos and those podcasts, if they were to spend every waking moment of each week in between the release of the preview and the next episode to figure out exactly what the script of the next episode would be. Right? It'd be that ridiculous. Or to extend the example of the thief image we were talking about, it'd be like spending your entire life trying to work out when you might be robbed. That's stupid. You don't do that. It's foolish to weigh this way. And fourthly, um, we're going to slow down right here. The fourth bad way that the church has tried to wait is by forgetting. By forgetting. We forget that Jesus is coming back again. I hope you kept the passage in 2 Peter 3 open because we're going to look at it now, yeah? We're going to look at it now. You see, friends, forgetting was something that Peter, the closest disciple to Jesus and the writer of this letter, was really, really concerned about, so much so that he dedicates this entire chapter to it. The followers of Peter, um, the followers, followers that Peter were writing to, were at risk of forgetting about Jesus' return because there were people from among them that had actually forgotten. Right, in verse 5, have a look, verse 5, Peter describes them as deliberately, deliberately forgetting. And these folk who were you know, once among them were now convinced that Christ was not coming. And now they were trying to persuade everybody of that same thought. And so we see their claim in verse 4. Have a look, verse 4. They will say, these people, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as, it's, as it has since the beginning of creation. Where is this coming? Where is this coming that he's promised? See, what are they saying? They're saying that Jesus has not done anything. Right? It's, been a, it's, been a, it's been a couple of decades now since Jesus has risen, and nothing has changed. He said that he'd return. He's not returned. So why on earth should we expect anything different going into the future? He's not coming. And so Peter, seeing that, he's really concerned. And so in chapter 3, he wants to remind them, in verse 1, and to recall them, in verse 2, of the words spoken in the past, so that in verse 8, they do not forget. And so what sort of things does Peter write to help remind them? Yeah? Well, he firstly goes to the past. right? He goes back to Genesis to remind these believers what the future of these, these scoffers, he calls them, will be. He goes back to the past to remind these believers what the future of these scoffers will be. Right? Verses 5 to 7 of chapter 3, let's have a read. Verses 5 to 7. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time were deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, what's Peter saying? 
This is pretty much what he's saying, right? He's saying, you're all believers. You believe God created the world. And, and it seemed like nothing terrible was going to happen. But what happened in Noah's day? You know Noah's story. What happened in his day? The very waters that God made were then used to destroy and judge the ungodly. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. See, these scoffers, they think that nothing has happened. They think nothing will happen. But just like the flood was God's divine judgment on the ungodly, guess what? Jesus is going to return. And he's going to judge. Bank on it. See, Peter, see, Peter is saying to these believers, and therefore to us, don't forget. Don't forget. The fate of these scoffers and their forgetfulness and their evil desires are just, if we do the same, we're just repeating the same mistake as those that did in Noah's day. They will be judged. But it's not just a negative reason that Peter gives. He also gives a positive reason, right? Read verses 8 to 9 with me of 2 Peter 3, verses 8 to 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Peter writes, with, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In these verses, Peter is saying, don't forget, not just because God's going to judge, because he, but he, he will, but also that there's a very, very good reason why, he hasn't, why Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's not because Jesus can't or is unable to keep his promise, like these scoffers say that he is, that he's just not doing it. It's because he's choosing not to come back yet. Jesus is being patient. Jesus is extending mercy. See, friends, we all know this. The quality of a promise doesn't come so much from the content of the promise, right? It comes from the giver of the promise. The quality of a promise comes from the giver of the promise. We all know this. Boris Johnson, the, the UK Prime Minister at the moment, who just got re-elected, um, while he was mayor a few years ago, said that it's easy to make promises, but it's hard work to keep them. I suspect he's found that to be quite true looking at his prime ministership. Right? But this is God who's promising to you and to me. Jesus is returning, and what we might interpret as slowness or promise breaking is actually God remaining faithful to his promise. You see, church, every day that Jesus has not returned is evidence of God's patience, it's evidence of God extending mercy. Every day that Jesus has not returned means that he is not done with rescuing people. You imagine if Jesus returned last year. People like Jeffrey and Mark, who we heard last, last week, they would not be saved. God is extending mercy. He's not done rescuing people. And so Peter is saying, don't forget Jesus is returning. His delay shows how much he still wants people to come to repentance. There is still time. Maybe you are here today and you're checking out Christianity. You know, you, this is all very new to you. Uh, you, might, you uh, maybe you've been wrestling for ages as well. See, in the midst of everything that we've spoken about, I hope, I hope that you see the patience and the mercy of God that God extends to you by waiting. Jesus will return. It's inevitable. God's not going to leave the job unfinished. 
God sent his son into the world. Jesus went willingly to the cross. He defeated death and conquered death when he rose. And so he will come back and he will make all things new. He's not done. The job's unfinished. And he will finish it. And so keep coming, if that's you. I can't think of a much better time than during Christmas to keep asking your questions, to, to take the next step, to think more, to explore more about who Jesus is and what Jesus is, who Jesus is for you. And so we're grateful you're here with us. But if you're a Jesus follower and you've been following Jesus for, for, for a day or for ages, here's the thing, it's unlikely, when we're thinking about the four responses of how the church is waited, it's unlikely that you're going to flee from the world knowing that Jesus is going to return. You're probably not going to do that. It's unlikely that you're going to take up arms knowing that Jesus is going to return. You're probably not going to do that. It's unlikely that you're going to start writing this massive, thick, typewritten book about when Jesus will return. You're probably not going to do that. But if you're anything like me, while we might not willingly or deliberately forget, like the scoffers in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's another kind of forgetting that we are more likely to do. See, friends, the fact that Peter wrote this chapter to believers only a few decades removed from Jesus' rising means he feared even faithful Jesus followers could absorb ideas from the people and culture around them, even unintentionally, and then that would steer them away from the truth. And if that's true for believers just a couple of decades, not long after Jesus' resurrection, how much more is it true for us? See, we can forget the times we're in, can't we? See, Peter describes the times we're in in verse 3 as the last days. The last days. We are in an era in God's epic plan where seriously the only big event left is that Jesus would come back. That's it. That's the only big event that's left. And, And in our forgetfulness of these times, we can turn to things that God has designed to bring enjoyment in its temporariness, if that's a word, and we can make them more permanent and more prominent than God designed it to be. Right, what do I mean? Let me give you a personal example. Right? This, year, this year has been a wonderful year, um, a wonderful privilege being full-time here on staff. It's been fantastic. It's been great to be part of the staff team. It's been great to try all these different things. It's been great to be encouraged and see fr- bits of fruit here and there as well. It's been great to pour myself into serving full-time for the very first time. It's been fantastic. But in the last you know, month or so, I've received feedback from people that I respect and I've invited to speak into my life about the way that I've poured myself into work and how that could impact other aspects of my life. They've talked about the way that it's impacted my marriage. They've talked about the way that it could impact my devotional life, my health, my sleep. They've talked about the way that I've let my work bleed into the things that I shouldn't. And as good as vocational ministry has been this year, there have been too many moments and more than I'd probably like to admit that I've made this ministry work more permanent and more prominent than it ought to be. And if I were to continue down that track to make this ministry thing more prominent and permanent than it's meant to be, the only place it will lead is to hurt and disappointment. See, friends, Korea, including vocational ministry work, it's good, but it's temporary. Marriages are good, but it's temporary. 
Family is good, but it's temporary. Friendships are good, but it's temporary. Holidays, experiences, hobbies, traveling, they're good, but they're temporary. And in our forgetfulness, we can make these good but temporary things so much more permanent, so much more prominent than they're meant to be. Quick but extremely important disclaimer, that doesn't mean the answer is to suddenly abandon all these temporary things, right? It's not like there are only two options here. If, you, if it's permanent, keep. If it's temporary, ditch. It's, it's not like that. It's not, it's not like that. Right? Good things are good, to state the obvious, and God gives them to us. So enjoy them. Dedicate time to it. Right? Treat them as gifts from God to you and to me, because they are. But be measured. Be thoughtful. Remember that these things are best enjoyed in our last days when they're temporary. Because when Jesus returns, things are only going to get even better. So we shouldn't flee, we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't be foolish, we shouldn't forget. So how should we wait? Right? How should we wait? We're up to our third point. Uh, coming back to earlier, if, if God has given us this preview of what Jesus' second advent, his second coming, is going to be like, how are we going to wait? What will our response be? The passages across the New Testament say a lot about this, but for the sake of time, we won't go through them. Let me summarize with this phrase. What should our response be? How should we wait? Um, we should wait imminently. Yeah, We should wait imminently. Now, I don't take credit for this. It's far from my own. It's a word that's been used to describe how we should wait for Jesus' return for ages by Christians infinitely smarter than me. But to wait imminently means to wait as if Jesus' second coming is near. That's what it means. To wait as if Jesus' second coming, his second advent, is near. What does that look like? Well, waiting imminently isn't as if Jesus will return immediately. Right? They're not, they're, they're not, they're not, they don't mean the same thing. Right? Imminently and immediately don't mean the same thing. As if Jesus is going to return uh, when, we go, when we go in for lunch, for example. Right? It's not to think like that, necessarily. See, if we did, if we thought that Jesus could return when we go in for all in lunch... I reckon what we would do with our lives is we would just stop doing anything productive, right? And we would get impatient um, as we become unproductive, right? If we knew Jesus was coming at lunch, guess what? You're, you're not thinking about work tomorrow. You wouldn't get your kids dressed in the morning. You wouldn't do the groceries tonight. You'd cancel all your plans in your calendar. See, waiting imminently doesn't mean waiting, waiting as if he's coming immediately because we still have to live productive lives in honor and serving God. But at the same time, waiting imminently also shouldn't be living as if Jesus will never return in our lifetimes, right? Because if we did, we'd begin to, to move into the territory of forgetfulness that we just talked about. If, if we just think Jesus will never return in our lifetime, we're just going to forget over time. See, waiting imminently is kind of in between those two responses, it doesn't mean it will be immediate, leading to laziness and impatience. Neither does it mean believing that it won't happen ever, which would just lead to forgetfulness. See, waiting for Jesus imminently isn't like going to a doctor's waiting room, right, where you put your life on hold. Everything's on pause as you sit in that receptionist waiting to go into the doctor's room. Waiting for Jesus imminently is more like waiting for the summer to come. We know summer is coming, we know it's near, we still have things to do and lives to live, and we, yet we can still be preparing for someone to come, but our lives aren't on hold because it's near. Yeah? 
Now, I've titled this third point, How Should We Wait? Not because there's a group here, so there's a we here, but because it's actually very significant that we consider waiting imminently as a collective thing, as a together thing, as a we thing. The we here in the third point is actually a meaningful we. It's actually incredibly important. Why? Well, because it's biblical. It's the way that God actually wants us to wait. The writer to the Hebrews, after reflecting on these amazing promises of God, just like we've done a little bit of today, turns to his audience and he writes this. He begins in verse 23. I'll read verse 23 and then we'll go into this. Let us hold unswervingly, he writes, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And then he moves on. He turns and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. See, friends, as we wait imminently for Jesus to return, trusting in God's promise that he will, or in the language of the verse that's on the screen, as we see that day approaching, the community and the friendships around us play a critical role in helping us wait. We, we can't do this on our own. We need one another to wait well. But church, the funny thing about friendships is if you want nothing but friends, you'll never have friends. Right? If you want nothing but community, you'll never get community. C.S. Lewis made that really important observation in his book, The Four Loves. He writes this, The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I don't care about that. I just want you to be my friend. No friendship can arise from that. See, it's a paradox. But friendship and community can't be about friendship and community itself. Friendship must be about something else. A strand that ties it together. It could be a movie, books, TV shows, games, sport, nature, theater, music, arts, hobbies, pets, whatever. Right? Something that both friends and the community is committed to. When you've got something like that, then friendships and community can form. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. For the Jesus follower, for the Christian, friendship with one another has an incredibly deep strand that ties them together. We are one in Christ, supernaturally loved by God. But to borrow the words of Pastor Tim Keller, we also not just have something that ties us together, we also have a horizon that is so high and so far, and that is when Jesus returns and we will finally see him face to face. See, for the Christian, for the Jesus follower, for you, we have a greater depth and greater bond than any friendship in the world. We also have a greater horizon and a higher horizon than any friendship in the world. When our friendships, Christian friendships and relationships, are about you know, what any friendship can be about, as wonderful as it is, we're not even scratching the surface of what these friendships and communities could get to. Right? If, if all that connects me to a Christian brother is a love for basketball, as amazing as the NBA is, if that's all that kind of connects us, that's, that's a lacking friendship. Jesus is returning. There is no greater horizon. And so, Southwest, some questions for you to consider. 
today. Friends, can you actually name the people that God has placed in your life to help you wait well and for you to help them wait well? Are your Christian friendships and relationships actually, actually helping you to wait well? And are you doing the same for them? If you're married, right, you still need friends, but in your marriage, is your spouse helping you to wait well? And are you doing the same for them? Because friends, we need each other to wait well. As we approach celebrating Jesus' first coming at Christmas, would that stir us to wait well together for his second coming? Because this is a sequel certainly worth waiting for. Uh, The bands come up. They're going to lead us in a time of singing. Um, There's going to be bags that will be passed around. Um, If you're new, hopefully you would have received those cards that Mel mentioned. Please put them in. Regulars, you know what to do with that bag as it comes around. Uh, We're going to stand. We're going to sing in response. Uh, Let's do that.